Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of KDOW or its management owners or advertisers and should not be construed as legal tax or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. 1220 KDOW presents Rob Black and Your Money. Your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finance, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800-516-1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now to start your day with the latest news and market commentary. Here's Rob Black on the Bay Area's business leader, 1220 KDOW. Welcome in, Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Anything you want to talk about, we could talk about. I'm here. Uh, kind of as your financial uh, guide, whether it be towards retirement or whether it be through the stock market, what's moving and why. Try to hit all the stories that matter to you um, and put some sort of perspective on it so that it makes sense. First and foremost, um, one of the things I like to talk about is the markets, you know, kind of out of the gate kind of thing. Stock market just ran out of gas on Friday, and we've had an amazing five-plus year run. There's been times where we look at political events. There's been times where we look at economic data, and right now the political events are kind of beating the economic data. Um, the economic data is pretty good right now. Now, again, that doesn't mean we go straight up because that doesn't make sense either. A lot of traders and investors will be keenly watching the markets today to see, do we get back some of that? Um, this week is sure to produce a lot of market-moving catalysts, which, to say the, you know, uh, the fog out there will be a little less foggy due to economic data points. Uh, the OECD cut its 2014 growth view for the United States to 2.1% from 2.6%, and cut the European Union from 1.2% down to 0.8%. The OECD also warned that risk is being mispriced and the attendant dangers of a sudden correction. That's pretty dramatic. It's attention-grabbing headlines. It comes just a short time ahead of the FOMC meeting on Wednesday. That's another big market moving potential. Market seems split as to whether the Fed will delete the phrase considerable time from its directive and introduce verbiage that is more pronounced signaling you know, mechanism pertaining to the possibility of rates being raised sooner than later. So Fed Reserve controls or sets short-term interest rates, borrowing costs in the United States kind of trickles up into the 
whole banking community, up into you and your mortgages, up into businesses and their bonds. They help set the price of risk, so to speak. Um, the lower the cost of money, the more risk that people tend to take. Um, it got priced so cheap that it's almost like a no-brainer to refinance your house if you haven't done that in the last five years. So the FOMC meeting will include a press conference by the Fed chair. It comes in front of Scotland's vote on independence, Alibaba's IPO, and nuclear talks between nuclear powers in the city of New York. Tucked into all of this will be a lot of economic data, industrial production report, which comes out today. Uh, the New York Fed Empire Manufacturing Survey for September impressed on the upside, reading at 27.5 versus 14.7 in August. So notwithstanding the impressive print, you know, uh, the market's eh, not impressed. So the SP 500 down three, the Dow down 11, Nasdaq down 34. Um, other big stories of note, Urban Outfitters has taken some heat this morning for selling fake bloodstained Kent State sweatshirts on its website for $129. The shirts were a classless reference to the 1970 incident when the Ohio National Guard shot 13 unarmed war protesters. Uh, you got to wonder, how does, like, you look at the Ray Rice story and you go, how can, some, how can this happen? And then you look at the Urban Outfitters story and... How could they put up a T-shirt, a sweatshirt, that's fake bloodstain? It was one of the most darkest, most divisive moments in U.S. history. Now, it's, this is a company, Urban Outfitters, and maybe, maybe I do believe we should start banning and start protesting. You know, stupid PR state, uh, statements. Uh, they've done the stunt before, or something similar. They sold a shirt for girls with... Eat Less, printed on the front. Last month, Zara evoked images of the Holocaust. Urban's Kent State shirts sold out almost immediately and now are available on eBay. Um, please don't buy them. That's all I can throw out there for you. Uh, Beer Wars, better than Star Wars, right? Heineken has confirmed that it's rejected a takeover from SAB Miller. Heineken Family, which still has controlling interest in the world's number three brewer by volume. Says the company intends to remain independent. SAB Miller is the number two brewer in the world. It's not over yet, though. Low rates have given all multinational beer uh, companies what I would refer to as beer goggles. They're all looking to buy each other. Heineken is still looking pretty good to Belden's King of Beer. Anheuser-Busch, which controls 20% of the global market. Throwing it out there. Anheuser-Busch is in talks with banks about financing what could be a $122 billion deal. $122 billion deal. $122 billion deal to buy SAB Miller. Like, oh, want to pop a beer to that one and just go, boo, number one by number two. Um, is that going to get through antitrust? Tough to imagine. Uh, but those are some of the headline stories out there for sure. Uh, let's take a look at some of the other ones that we're seeing. Apple, once again, has sold out of their new phone that's coming out on Friday. So, let's see. In the first 24 hours, the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus were available for pre-order. Apple says it's got 4 million pre-orders. 
The iPhone 5 did 2 million pre-orders in a 24-hour period. iPhone 6 is the biggest story in tech right now. Apple updated the iPhone, giving it a new design and a much bigger screen. Apple CEO Tim Cook predicted that this upgrade would trigger the mother of all upgrades. It seems so far that he is right on that. So now you're waiting. If you don't wait in line Friday at a store, then you know, you're know you going to have to wait for them to get more inventory back in and or uh, jump online and wait three, four, five weeks, whatever it's going to be, until they are able to catch up to it, if that's your thing. Let's take a quick look at shares of Apple. How are they playing on that uh, news? Now, when Tim Cook says it's going to be the mother of all upgrades, there's some negatives to that as well. Because now they've got product out to address the, the bigger phone market, and they no longer have that trick up their sleeve. They got it. You know, they, They've already played it. They've already hit it. They've already done it. So, yeah, it's going to be a great quarter. It's going to be an okay quarter. The phone's only out for a very small part of this quarter. Next quarter's going to be a great quarter. Quarter after that's going to be a great quarter. And then it start, gets to the point of like, okay, uh, you're already selling in China. You're already selling in the United States. Are you going to sell on the moon? Where's the next big upgrade going to be coming from? You can find me online at robblack.com. It's robblack.com. You can drop me an email question, rob at robblackshow.com, rob at robblackshow.com. Uh, anything you want to talk about, we can talk about. Support grows for the U.S. campaign on the Islamic State, ISIS. Um, UK, Australia. Some leading Arab states offering support. So, Microsoft agrees to buy Minecraft Maker. Try to make sense about why that is. Let's take a break here. I'll be right back. Welcome back in. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Taking a look at the markets today. Disappointing data from China adds to global macro concerns. Industrial production increases at the slowest pace there since 19, since 2008, December of 2008. Dollar index continues with a recent climb. Bad for U.S. multinationals. Um, Growth forecast in the United States being cut from about 2.6% down to 2.1% for 2014. Strength today in consumer staples and utilities, kind of defensive areas, things that you have to have as a consumer. And utilities, things that you have to have as someone who doesn't want to die from a cold winter. Uh, weakness day in consumer discretionary, healthcare, technology, and industrials. 
Let's talk a little financial planning. Bring in a CFP, Chad Burton. Joining me now, CFP Chad Burton with NewFocusFinancial.com. That's NewFocusFinancial.com. Let's talk retirement plan beneficiary mistakes. Isn't it just beneficiary mistakes overall, like insurance beneficiary mistakes, retirement plan beneficiary mistakes, or is there something unique to retirement plans that we need to know? Well, the, the main thing to know is that life insurance, annuities, and IRAs, 401ks, the beneficiary designation that you have overrides any will or trust that you've done. And so there, <laughs> the issue with especially retirement accounts, if you have a very wealthy person that faces estate taxes and they make beneficiary mistakes, their IRAs can be taxed at 70% plus because they have state taxes, they have federal taxes, um, and then they have estate taxes on top of the federal and state taxes. So you, it can really get nailed if you do it the wrong way. So the biggest issue is not having a beneficiary at all or naming your estate. Um, if you pass away under the age of 70 and a half, it forces your heirs to pay the taxes within five years. But if you've named them directly, they can stretch the tax issue over their lifetime and let the account continue to actually grow and just take out a little bit each year or more if they want to, but they have the flexibility of not having to pay Uncle Sam. And if you pay it out, a larger retirement account over five years, it, it increases the tax bracket to the higher levels and you pay so much more to the feds if you would have been able to stretch it out over your lifetime. So naming your estate or no beneficiary at all, probably the two biggest mistakes that I see out there. So no beneficiary at all is a problem. What if you have no beneficiaries? What if you like you just don't care? You're single. Got a cat, got a dog. <laughs> you can create a pet trust. God, I those people drive me crazy. It's a little odd, huh? Yeah. Um, they own a home, Helmsley? She left money to her cat or her dog, a lot of money, like millions. Yeah, I'd be surprised in some of the state planning attorneys like Michelle Lerman that we have on quite often. She's had to do pet trust before. And Isn't people talk about them, and, and you go through a conversation with them, they say, my girls, my my boys, or whatever, and they're talking about their animals, yeah. not their children. Isn't that just a big F you to humanity when you leave egregious amounts of money to an animal? Yeah, I guess it depends on what happens after the animal dies, too. Yeah. Well, that's a mistake that people can make is you leave retirement accounts to a trust and the trust names a charity as a beneficiary in addition to the kids. And this is where education to your trustee comes into play because if certain deadlines aren't met by September of the following year after death, the charity makes sure you have to get that paid out and done and over with and the paperwork submitted for the other kids by October in order to do these stretch IRAs. So a charity can actually complicate the IRA yet if you're trying to benefit your church or your charity, the best asset to leave them is a portion of your retirement account because they will never pay taxes on that money. Nobody ever will. So, But you have to incorporate your trust, your beneficiary designations and everything with that idea that you want to leave money to charity and to kids. Okay. Lots of complications in that, right? Yeah, you know, I've had a family member recently been named to a uh, trustee of a trust. Mm-hmm. Executor of the will, kind of, you know, the overseer of the the wealth. Yep. That's a stressful position. It's horrible. People act like, hey, I'm going to name you as my executor or my trustee, and like it's a great honor. And all of a sudden, you're dealing with three kids that don't get along, mounds and mounds of paperwork, going through the person's desk, seeing where assets are aren't anymore. People looking for advances. Yeah. And if you don't have that person, I mean, oftentimes there are kids that don't get along. Um, oftentimes naming a professional fiduciary to yep. handle the estate for a fee is a better idea. Um, and simplifying things. You might have your trust, but you still need a, a separate letter that says what, you know, for certain items, um, jewelry, 
your autos, um, things like that. Um, and so that way you can have a separate letter with your trust rather than a paying attorney every time you want to change your mind. One of the problems with this particular scenario, the executor, um, sh- so the parents basically gave $200,000 to one daughter, made the other daughter the executor with a note that says you get $200,000 upon death. But they gave $200,000 to their one daughter so she could go out and buy a house while the other daughter's waiting for the money. Let's say she waits 20, 30 years. Does she get 5% interest every year? Does she get – and then the original people, their house goes – let's say it goes bankrupt and the house – like. They, so they still uh, want money because their house they bought in 2007 yeah. is now worthless or upside down. It, and that's how it can get messy very fast. Yeah. And then you get spouses going like, but don't we get interest? Or can I get a lump sum now because I want to buy a truck? Um Executor is not a sexy position. No, it's so. it's tough. And then, you know, 55% of marriages end in divorce. People have to update their estate plans after divorce. You've seen numerous stories where people die and money goes to the ex-spouse all the time. Um, and prenups. In ERISA law, if you're doing a second marriage, the prenup doesn't really help with your retirement plan. You have to have a spousal waiver after the fact. All fun topics at CFP Chad Burton. You can find him at newfocusfinancial.com. That's newfocusfinancial.com. And I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. You can find me online at robblack.com. You can drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. Alibaba is likely raising its IPO price range. Uh, the firm is going to aggressively expand in the United States. Um, we will talk about this as the IPO gets closer. Alibaba is something that Yahoo owns a big stake of. And it's, you know, in the middle of marketing its IPO right now, um, company's probably going to raise its deal price. Um, they want to expand aggressively in the United States. They're going to raise as much as $24 billion in what could be the world's largest ever IPO. So they're showing us their numbers, and they're pretty impressive, all things considered. Um, companies doing what's called a roadshow around the world. Um, Jack Ma, CEO, you're going to hear more and more about him in the coming years, much like you hear Jeff Bezos. Um, Alibaba's roadshow, you know, it's looking for all sorts of investors, so to speak, and uh, they're going to aggressively play with, you know, companies like Tencent. Um, They want to get into physical companies in the United States as well as Internet companies. So we've got that to look forward to. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. We'll take a break here. We'll be right back. I'll put you on the map. I'll cure you of disease.
I'm not a big fan of carrying around a lot of debt. I think it's one of the new, uh, one of the weights that you can carry around that kind of like crushes you over time. I read a lot of personal finance blogs, um, how people you know pay off debt, and sometimes it can be kind of inspiring. Um, some of them are pro athletes, um, living in a car to pay off debt. Um, don't be ashamed of your debt are some of the ideas. Ten characteristics of debt-free people, I think, are always kind of interesting. You know, um, I'm pretty detailed-oriented. People who have, you know, good financial position in lives, they pay close attention to their finances. They don't just go, well, I maxed out my 401k. You actually get the paperwork out on occasion and see how you're doing and how you've done in the last five years. Um, debt is a mortgage on your future, and that's not good. Debt is a you know indentured servitude. It's we sacrifice future earnings for instant gratification. Um, you got to be a little more pragmatic if you're going to have less issues with debt. You know, a lot of people who are debt free are very 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 practical. Um, I refuse to buy a luxury car until I'm 50. And then I will. And uh, with that said, I, I buy very pragmatic, practical cars. There was a point in time where I did a lot of skiing, so it made a lot of sense to get a lot of, uh, you know, a vehicle that could handle the mountains and the snow. People who are pragmatic, uh, you know, I'm not saying like you have to wear like the worst jeans ever, but you don't have to wear the most expensive jeans ever. Uh, I don't want to totally kill your lifestyle if you know that's important to you, but you can if you want to. People who are debt-free tend to be patient. They're not impulsive shoppers. They're not looking for instant gratification. You know, something that I started doing five, six, seven years ago was uh, I plan out my weekend. So it was one trip to all the stores, and that saved me on gas and also made me a little bit more efficient so that the rest of my weekend was not feeling like I was always jumping around to a drugstore, grocery store, retail, you know, clothes and things like that. Um, very, very practical. Um, people who are debt-free are very, very practical. A good example of this is, when I was seven, eight, nine years old, I'd go out and play football in my jeans and soccer in my jeans, and I'd just have grass stains everywhere. I was filthy dirty. And my mother had to work real hard to get those stains out, and she did. You know, she knew exactly how to do it. She was a great mother. Uh, I don't really slide around in, in grass and mud and dirt anymore, so I don't really wash my clothes all that aggressively. I wash everything on delicate, uses less water, does less damage to clothes. Oh. If for some reason I, I did a tough mutter, yeah, I'd probably, you know, up it to a little bit more. Uh, debt-free people tend to be very confident. You know, people never let their self-worth be defined by their pos uh, possessions, and you shouldn't. Uh, you understand that status in life is more accurately conveyed by self-confidence rather than dubious displays of wealth. Uh, I was driving in this morning, looked to my right, and saw this old man driving... Um, a really sporty luxury car. 
And what that is, is he's old and he wants to look younger to the ladies and guys around him. Um, so he throws out an excessive amount of money to, to look that way. I find it funny. Hopefully he's wealthy, because otherwise he's just going to be, you know, that's a horrible asset to purchase in that kind of scenario. Um, people who are financially independent, people who have no debt, tend to be reliant on themselves. Most people who work hard to maintain a life of financial freedom take pride in being self-reliant. They live within their means and save as much as money as they can for the rainy days and lean times. They're not materialistic. The pursuit of expensive toys and other possessions can make life more luxurious. But at what cost, you know? Debt-free people understand this, which is why they tend to live simpler lives that focus on, like, joys of the family rather than accumulating material possessions. One of my friends, uh, her dad was really, really poor. And, you know, he quit his job teaching early uh, because he was ready to not to work. He felt like he had done it for so long. And the longer you work as a teacher, the better the pension you get. And he quit too early, and he never found, you know, a toy that he didn't like. Um, he's got six televisions in his house, all with DirecTV. I, I don't know the DirecTV pricing model, but that's got to be expensive. Um, credit cards are double-edged sword. That's something debt-free people know. Um, I get kind of anxious when it comes time to pay bills. Like, uh, I'm like, did I pay off my debt, all my credit card debt? Because I don't want to carry it. Um, people who are in control of their finances aren't afraid of credit cards. They embrace them. While financially savvy, people understand the incredible benefits that credit cards provide their owners. They also know that if they fail to pay them off fully at the end of the month, it's going to hurt. And all those benefits go away. So just something to think about, uh, you know, how you approach debt. And debt can be a kind of a shaming situation. Uh, I learned something that made me very popular with in dating was that I learned kill sh- anything tied towards shame, like... Um, back when I was like 20, I was like, ah, I could probably lose five pounds. Uh, and maybe I'd keep my shirt on at the beach kind of thing. Take it off. Develop a sense of humor. Um, so shame is something that a lot of people carry with debt. Um, there's a big difference between, you know, character and behavior. Overspending and going into debt, you know, they're not character flaws, they're behavioral flaws. You need to educate yourself on debt. Uh, there's a lot of poor spending habits. Like I told you, my friend whose father retired way too early. Um, he comes into money, he spends it. He comes into money, he spends it again. So, if you educate yourself on money, you know, a good community college or something along those lines... Uh, can get you, you know, brought up to speed with uh, everything that you need to know financially. That's why I do the show. If you have problems with debt, another thing you could do is stop spending. So, one of the things I don't like seeing is uh, I've seen people take money out of the house to pay off credit cards, and then they just start racking up the credit cards again. And that doesn't really solve the problem. It, it makes it even worse. Because now you, you don't feel the debt that's taken out of your house, but it's there. You had equity built up, or you know, maybe you just refinance and go with a bigger, longer loan. You pay off your credit cards. Woohoo, you feel good about yourself. 
and then you fall into that trap of spending again. Um, look at all your debts. Look at how they accumulate. Like last week, I was putting together my budget. Um, I like to do that every probably three to six months on a pretty regular basis, just seeing how much I've spent. Um, and I don't have to do that. But also, I like to see if there's any flaws in my spending. Am I hitting the liquor store, or am I hitting the restaurants, or am I, you know, my gym membership cost? Is there anything that's, like, not good? Um, when you look at all your debts and, like, know that there's good debts, mortgages and student loans, and pay those off as slowly as you can, depending on the interest rates, any debt over 8% is the one you should target first. Um, I disagree with people like Sue Zorman's out there. Is like, Find the smallest credit card debt. Pay that one off first, because, girlfriend, you'll feel good about yourself. Uh, um, don't like it. So, ah, Sue Zorman's making this an appearance. Hey, Sue, how are you? Nice, nice. Good weekend, huh? Well, take care. Talk to you soon. <laughs> I miss her when she'd come by the studio all the time. Um, pat yourself on the back with debt, too. You know, Give yourself a break. Know that once you see it and start tackling it, it'll be so much better. Know that people like, and we have things to learn, football players and, and musicians, they go bankrupt. 80% of football players uh, within three years of leaving the NFL are in financial difficulties. It's because they've got too many friends. They've got too many women. They've got too many houses. They bought mama a house, and you have to pay the taxes on that still. Um, taxes is a thing that get a lot of wealthy people in trouble. Um, they get a lot of people in trouble. Pay your taxes. It's, don't mess with the IRS. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Apple's moving a little bit higher today. Um for a market that's struggling, um, I guess you would say that's a good thing. You know, the pre-orders on the iPhone 6 are pretty large, so that stock's sitting just a skosh under its all-time high. Um, it's got a really, really big uh, valuation. So, the CFO of Radio Shack has resigned. Stock rallies on that news. Take a break here. We'll be back. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Which calls in the air? It's 800-516-1220. Drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. Coca-Cola, publicly traded company, newest social media campaign reaches back to a time before MySpace with the newest release of product, 
It's an old one. Surge Soda. Surge was a citrus-flavored Mountain Dew knockoff that was discontinued by Coke 12 years ago. It's going to reappear in limited supply. Only place to get it, Amazon.com. It's billed as the company's first ever e-commerce reintroduction. The news was announced by the Facebook fan site Surge Movement, whose 128,000 members lobbied for its return and paid for a billboard in Atlanta. Coke gave the drink an account on Twitter as well, so loyalists can follow the brand's journey. Interesting use of both social media as well as Amazon.com. It's not the greatest story for me. Like, I don't... Surge is listed as number seven on the top ten list of discontinued sodas. Uh, number eight on that list is Hubba Bubba Soda. Now, I'm not into the whole nostalgia thing. A friend of mine just went to his 10-year high school reunion. I've got no interest in seeing those losers from high school. None whatsoever. Um, it's 130% true. Popular with my teen years. Whee! Video gamers and extreme sports enthusiasts. Mountain Dew. Uh, has outperformed the soda category in Pepsi-Cola last year. Uh, Coke, you know, may have found a little bit of an opening here to kind of, you know, uh, kind of, I see, I don't even know if there's a story here. Uh, I just, uh, no thanks. No thank you. <laughs> um, other big stories of note. Let's see. I don't really see that many that are just jumping out like you have to talk about this. I think I've hit this one pretty good. Uh, SAB Miller trying to go after Heineken, but Anheuser-Busch, well, SAB Miller's failure to erect a defense against Anheuser-Busch by combining with Heineken has left the world's second largest brewery even more vulnerable to a takeover. Um, SAB Miller's inorganic options have been so publicly lessened uh, puts Anheuser-Busch in a stronger position. So it's wild seeing these companies just, you know, gobble each other up. Uh, a beer BMF, like, this would be huge. Um, there's investing in alcohol. I mean, some people would call this sin investing. And I, I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, but Guinness Brewer Diageo to Carlsberg have all advanced as they approach for Amsterdam-based Heineken field excitement about the potential for more deals. Um, these companies, the big boys, are putting a lot of debt on their balance sheets because of the low cost of it. And they're doing exactly what the Federal Reserve would have wanted them to do, uh, creating a little risk. So that one's going to be an interesting one to see play out from here. Chicago spoiled the housewarming party for San Francisco last night. Um, that's about all sports talk I have for you there. So, not much. Um, other stories of note, online gaming in the United States could be a $5.2 billion business by the year 2020. Talking about uh, jobs being lost. Uh, the one thing you could say about Vegas is they've got a lot of jobs for people who want, you know, not to go to college and go be a dealer or go be a hostess or a waiter. Um, you know, 
the amount of young people in their 20s who go to Vegas for a job for and have fun, uh, and the amount of seniors who kind of do the same thing, uh, you know, go turn cards in a cost of living lower than where you currently are, kind of a trade-off. Um, seems like all businesses are moving online, so gaming going there, I think, would be, I'm not going to say a travesty, but you got to remember, in gambling, the house always wins. So on occasion, yeah, you can, but I don't like it. Um, I just don't like the state of America, and, you know, because we love taxes, like, yeah, why not go ahead and do this? Um, it's worth noting that running an online gambling operation isn't easy money. These businesses are not profitable when the doors open. Um, you have to get the early adopter state streets maturity and for margins to ramp up, you know, long-term rate about 25%. Assume that online gambling operators do not break even in a given state until the second year. So there's going to be some cost tied towards it, which will, you know, discourage some of the states from jumping in. You know, New Jersey online gaming operators suggest, you know, that $5.2 billion could be conservative and that you can make money in year one. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that one plays out because, again, I don't think that's for the betterment of society. Um, I think the people, everyone loses money. The wealthy people could afford it, and it's a fun night. Uh, middle class and poor class lower income, they really can't afford it, can they? And yet, I know, you know, they will. IAC Interactive, they're making a move on online dating. Um, They own Match.com. They own OkCupid. Um, Some of their shareholders want the company to start spitting out some of these dating interactive sites. Um, In July, they acquired How About We?, they got a majority stake in Tender, which is basically ground zero for hooking up. I have a friend that did that one, and uh, she was shocked that the guy didn't call her after that. I was like, that's not what that app's all about. Like, yep. Anyhow, I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. You can find me online at robblack.com. Twitter, Rob Black Show, YouTube, Rob Black Show. You can drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. You're listening to AM 1220, KDOW. Views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800 516 
1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. So one of the things I like to do is kind of a Money 101, 20 Lessons to Financial Freedom, just like trying to package financial information for you. I think it helps, you know, setting priorities, making a budget, the basics of what is a stock. Like, even that simple concept to me is a wild concept to some people out there. Why do we talk about money? Why do we save money? Um, that's a good question. And basically it comes down to Social Security. If that's what you're counting on, you're probably going to be living a life in poverty. We know that as we age, a lot of Americans are going to develop diabetes. And we're like, well, maybe I should lose some weight, but you don't. You also know that Social Security is not enough. It's a supplemental program. And that most of what Social Security pays out to you will go to your health care. So food and living will be, you know, travel, um, electricity, things like that, housing will become a bigger and bigger issue. So I do these shows to kind of like get, get you set in the mood for thinking, i got to save a million dollars. A million dollars will pay $40,000 a year. So security will pay probably eh, between 1200 and 3000 a month. So what's that, 14000 to 36000 a year, roughly. So I think most people could live off 50000 pre-tax, but maybe you can, maybe you can't. What's your, what's your budget? One of the areas that kind of freaks people out is asset allocation. Practicing asset allocation is the single most important thing any investor for their future could ever do. Why? Because time is on your side. If you've got more years until retirement, you can afford to put a greater percentage of your assets in the stock market. That's great. Another reason is because stocks mean risk and return. If you have a higher tolerance for volatility, should you know having time and asset allocation works for you. Um, if you have no tolerance for risk, then you know your asset allocation may skew towards conservative. Um, asset allocation also means things like saving for college costs. They're rising higher and faster than inflation. No other investment's going to keep pace as well as stocks do. So asset allocation is something that you want to get some professional advice on or at least read and study and get a basic concept of asset allocation. The only professional I ever recommend you working with is a certified financial planner. Not a stockbroker, not an insurance guy, not the guy down at the bank who's got like a qualified retirement specialist. That's a BS title. Only title that means anything to me is certified financial planner. With asset allocations, you're talking about stocks. You're talking about what are assets? Stocks, bonds, real estate, baseball trading cards. So... Allocation is the key to achieving your goals, but also knowing what to allocate into the product of what the assets is very important. 
Um, studies have shown that asset allocation is the single most important factor to determine returns from investing. So before you set up your asset allocation plan, you got to find out, you know, the nature of the companies purchased by the mutual funds or the exchange-traded funds inside of it, or index funds. It's not enough to go by the names of the funds, like, ooh, the Frontier Fund, that sounds lovely, or the Dominize Social Fund. I, I believe in being social. Um, in search of performance, far too many fund managers buy stocks that barely fit their portfolio's investing parameters. So your income fund may, in practice, you know, contain a stocks that should be considered growth and vice versa. So when you pick up exchange rate funds and index funds, you really should look at what the holdings are and like, make sure that you're kind of comfortable. Same thing with bond funds. When I do a Money 101 kind of here's how you get to retirement, it's, I really don't focus a lot on bonds. Um, Software programs, and this is something that I see regularly living in the Bay Area, is a lot of engineers want to do it themselves, and they'll they'll set up a spreadsheet or they'll you know work some software and go, okay, I th- this is what I think I need to you know do my allocation, and it misses a lot, it ma- assumes a lot, and it makes a lot of mistakes. Um, understanding your long-term goals, you know. Do you want a sailboat after you retire? Do you want to pay off your mortgage so you can write a novel? Uh, you got to get started. It's never too late to revamp or revise an asset allocation plan, but if you don't have the you know plan, you can't revise it, right? So you have to get started. Asset allocation, what is it, right? It's about not putting all your eggs in one basket. It's the ultimate protection should things go wrong in one investment class or the sector. A lot of people loaded up in tech stocks in the 1990s, and the upside was very, very good, but the downside was just as bad. And a lot of people got in late because they kept hearing about their buddies making money, their buddies making money. They'd say, time to jump in. And, like, Yahoo was once $250 a share. It fell all the way to, like, $8. Are you with me or are you against me? A bad year in the stock market may show up as nothing more than an insignificant blip over 40 years. And that's, you know, the nature of, of me is I want you to invest from age 20 to 60, and then I want you to manage it from age 60 to 100. Historically, the stock market is the best long-term investment vehicle. It's one that beats bonds. It's one that beats real estate. The stock market is historically the best because it can deliver an average return of roughly 10% annually for those willing to stick it out. It's best to buy more when the market is down because you're getting it on sale. The stock market is a lot more volatile than other investments, of course. It hasn't been recently, but it will be again. Your risk tolerance and goals will determine how much you put into three investment categories. Um, the ultimate financial goal is, again, retirement. If you're retiring 15 years, you know, you've got a little tolerance for wild swings. You may want to keep 50% in stocks and 40% in bonds and 10% in cash. So... Cash is considered an asset class as well. You have to get the right mix of small, mid, large value and growth, some sort of international, some sort of income. I think your asset allocation could start right there, 20% of small, 20% of mid, 20% of large, 20% of income, and 20% of emerging markets.
And then you go, okay, well, I don't really like the international markets right now, so maybe you go with a smaller number there. And you put some of that into small companies in the United States, because small companies in the United States don't have a lot of exposure to international companies or to you know, international politics. So that's the basic idea of starting. You know, you got to determine, you know, uh, what components go in. And then, like, if you want a little bit more stability, maybe you'd go with a large cap value. You know, I look at asset allocation as, you know, uh, very much so particularly stocks, bonds, cash. Inside the stocks, you want diversification. Talk a little bit more about this. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. You can find me online at robblack.com. You can find me, email me, rob at robblackshow.com. It's rob at robblackshow.com. Talk a little asset allocation. So your break here. We'll be right back. So I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. Talking a little asset allocation. What is it? Why do you care about it? Again, there's something I would refer to as equity, uh, asset allocation, equity diversification. Asset allocation is a great concept that everyone really needs to try to you know, get behind and understand. It's an investment strategy to rebalance or to balance risk and to rebalance your portfolio. So when my large cap fund does really, really well five years in a row, one year in a row, I take some off. I do an automatic rebalance so that my asset allocation doesn't become overweighted. There's equities, there's fixed income, and there's cash and cash strategy. The less you're going to grow your money over time. The more equities you have, the more you're going to grow your money over time, if history holds true. Fixed income is somewhere in the middle. Fixed income, bonds, or real estate investment trusts, for instance. There's no simple formula that finds the right asset allocation for every single individual. There's some asset allocation mutual funds, which are known as life cycle funds or target funds. Those are an attempt to provide investors with portfolio structures that address investors' age, risk, appetite, risk suitability. Uh, critics of the life cycle funds point out that arriving at a standardized solution, you know, uh, you know, if you're going to read, uh, let me try to explain this a little bit better. Let's say the year's 2015, because you have to kind of round up or round down when doing a life cycle. A life cycle fund will do something like say, okay, you're 30, and the year is 2015. You're going to retire in the year 2045. I had 30 years. 30 plus 30 years, 60 years old now. So 
it does the math for you. It says, okay, you need some international, this much. You need some emerging markets. You need some Thailand, which is an emerging market. And as you get, as you're younger, it says that you need a lot more equities. You need a lot more, um, you know, equity stocks. As you're getting older, it's going to skew more towards fixed income and cash. So having that standardized solution is problematic because individual investors require individual solutions. There's no doubt about it. But for most of you out there, I would prefer you do a life cycle or a target date fund. And then later on, as you've accumulated some money, say, okay, now let's approach this again. I haven't saved enough, and I'm 40, so I'm not going to retire in, let's add 20 years to the year, call that 2035. So I better change and be riskier and go with maybe a 2045 fund or 2050, 2055. I need more equities. You can do it that way. Again, there's no one right answer. And what I've often found is that people get wealthy over time by accumulating assets. And that's why asset allocation is so important. If you look at it and you say, yeah, I'm going to buy some Nike. That's an equity. That's a stock. And then next year, you're like, oh, I want to buy some Facebook. And if, as long as you don't sell and you're buying these companies that have been around for years and years that you think are going to be around for years and years, you end up doing pretty well. Now, I don't want people going after individual stocks more often than not. I would much rather um, people look more long-term. But strategic asset allocation, if I look at long-term, I like indexes. Like if you were going to get a large-cap index, a small-cap index, a small uh, mid-cap index, I, I think you can go that way. There's no one simple formula. You do want you, you are cutting down risk. The projected 10-year cumulative return after inflation, where stock returns 8% yearly, bond returns 4.5%, inflation 3%. Uh, if you get 80% stocks and 20% bonds, the projected 10-year would be about 52%. Um, there's a lot of If you go 20% stocks and 80% bonds because you're really nervous and you want to protect it, your 10-year return is going to only be about 24%. Um, you have to have a willingness to go long-term with your money and not to go, I'm going to go in and go out. Because I look at it as kind of a horse race where large-cap companies will do well in the horse race against mid-cap. Oh, but some of your small caps just just absolutely knock it out of the park and they make large-cap and mid-cap the wrong ones to own. But then you get like gold that does awful. And you get cash that does awful. Um, or you get a, you know, Malaysia does great, Thailand does awful. But they all move forward over time. And they all f- cross the finish line. And none of them seem to work for more than two to three years in a row as the best. Gold will have a good two to three years. And then it'll have an awful ten years. Um Benjamin Graham once said, we have suggested as a fundamental guiding rule that the investor should never have less than 25% or more than 75% in common stocks, uh, with a consequence inverse range of 75% in stocks to 25% bonds. Uh, John Bogle says, you know, you want roughly your age in bonds. 
for instance, if you're 45, 45% of your portfolio should be in high-quality income. We will have a massive correction again at some point in time. We will have many corrections along the way. And that's when you, you're like, ooh, good thing I own these bonds. Because I'm just going to sit and wait for them to mature. Get my money back. <laughs> Sucker over there is down 50%. Um, yeah, you don't want to be down 50% the year you retire. That's why you don't want to be in stocks 100%. So what you need to succeed in asset allocation is time horizon. You don't want the money for a while. You want some income that comes in so you can continue to buy accumulating assets. You need an emergency fund so that when something bad happens in your life, you don't look at the stocks as your your piggy bank. Um, and that's kind of what you need, and you need to rebalance. I say at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. You know, a core portfolio would be 60-40 allocation, it would be like 36% U.S. market, 40% bond market, 6% REIT, 18% international markets. But that's just like one example. There's something called a coffee house market, which gives you 10% of everything almost. 10% REITs, 10% total international, 10% small value, 10% blend, 10% large value, 10% large blend, and 40% bond fund. Like it's pretty crazy the way this, this dissects. But write down asset allocation and probably think life cycle or target date funds as a good way of approaching it, and you can tweak it later. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Find me online at robblack.com. Email me, rob at robblackshow.com. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. I like to do a series on podcasts of radio shows tied towards getting the basic information out there. You know, budgets and goals and asset allocation, equity diversification. One of the lessons that I like to bring up is your 401k. Because it's kind of awesome. Your 401k, your 403b, your 457 has compelling benefits. They're all very similar. They're all qualified retirement plans. It's a way to reduce your taxable income since contributions come out of your pay before taxes are withheld. Many plans include a matching contribution from your employer, free money. The money you save benefits from tax-deferred growth, which lets your money compound double more quickly than it would be if it were taxed yearly. 
Um, I've got a regular, well, I'm not even going to get into the regular. I'm just going to talk for, I'm going to talk QRPs. The federal limit on annual pre-tax 401k contributions is on the rise. 17500 23000 if you're older than 50, and that'll adjust higher every few years. Matching contributions are free money. If you can't afford to max out your 401k, at least do enough to get the matching contribution free money. Uh, one of the things I'm surprised at is you work at a company and they say, okay, for every $6,000, we'll match 50 cents on every dollar up to 6% of all your salary. It's free money. It's for your future, but it's still free money. And people turn it down, which is kind of interesting. So talk about a 401k. You get a job. The best thing you could do is to start early, get a job early, get out of the house, get out of the nest. Um, and a lot of people don't sign up for the 401k because they're like, well, this is my first paycheck. I'm going to go spend it on clothes. And, oh, this is my second paycheck. I'm going to go spend it on a car. Oh, this is my third paycheck. Oh, gosh, I got a car payment. So you wouldn't refuse free money. You get an immediate tax break. So my federal taxes, let's say I was at the 25% bracket last year. Any money that I put into a 401k doesn't pay federal taxes. It means a dollar is a dollar. It's not quite because you pay state taxes, but that's that's pretty virgin money. That's pretty sweet. Uh, the possibility of matching contribution is even better. Um, like right now, if you have a dollar in your pocket, it once was a buck, you know, thirty, because you've been taxed at twenty-five percent. Again, that's our hypothetical number. So there are other federal non-discrimination tests a 401k must meet, one of which applies to highly compensated employees. Federal law sets guidelines for what's permissible and what's not. It's tight restrictions. Um, for all of its tax advantages, the 401k is not penalty-free. If you pull out the money before you're 59 and a half, you owe income taxes on the amount that you withdraw, plus an additional 10% penalty. Be aware of your plan's vesting schedule. Sometimes you have to be at a company a whole year before the company does matches. You know, but any of the money that you put in is yours. You've got a 401k. Now you need to know how to use it. It's like having a car, but you've got to learn how to avoid a crash. Um, I max out my 401k every year, and I have basically every year that I've been working. Um if you're just starting to plan for retirement at age 40, you'll need to put away a lot more than when you're in your 20s. Typically, most financial planners will say 10% at least of what you want to put in your 401k, maybe 15% if you can afford it. Now, keep in mind, if a company matches 6% and you do 10, you're at 16%. Your big task right now is to determine how you should be invested for the long haul. For starters, you want a mixture of stocks, bonds, and cash. That's asset allocation. There's two big key factors when picking asset allocation, your risk tolerance and how many years you have left. The more risk you can tolerate, i.e. when you hear that the stock market is down, I'm like, woo, it's where there's a sale. Now, some people go, oh, man, my money's going down. That's not for you, then. You want less risk. But I think you're wrong. Um, if you've got 20-plus years, you can afford to have a higher percentage of stocks in your portfolio. 
typically right around 10 is when I start saying, you know, you, you got to be careful. Um, if you want a link to a asset allocator link, drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. I'll send you a link. Once you've got, you know, your asset allocation idea in your head, then you move on. There's things to look for when you're picking a, a fund or an ETF. If you're looking for the one that has the highest returns, that's the wrong way of going about it. You're looking for the one that have had the highest returns compared to their peers. So you compare a large cap fund to a large cap fund, and you're looking over a three, five, ten year lifespan. You're looking for low prices, a fund's expense ratio, what you're charged annually. Uh, you want it as low as possible because, honestly, stocks and index funds work over time pretty well. And the more fees associated with it, the less you save. You can get a lot of these target funds with 10 basis points. 100 basis points is 1%. So for every $100 you put in to a target fund, they only, they only take 10 cents. 10 basis points, uh, one, one basis point is 1%, right? A dollar. So you want to look at uh, expense fees. If I would prefer you go with an index fund versus a managed fund. A managed fund has a portfolio manager. I'm not saying all portfolio managers are bad, but I prefer that you lean towards index fund. And if you do go towards a managed fund, I think you want to look at you know their track record. Um, are you paying a lot just to get average performance? And if so, why not just do an index fund with less fees? You know, uh, there's always going to be debacles to look at. With 401ks, you have the problem of what my brother Michael did in the 90s. He got scared, cashed out his 401k, had to pay income taxes on it and penalties. The penalties seem kind of harsh, but they're to just... Uh, disincentivize you from doing it in your life it's tempting to go to the 401k but it's not a piggy bank for the short term it's a piggy bank for the long term you know there's something called a hardship withdrawal though you're allowed to make withdrawals for example for certain qualified hardships um, you're still going to pay the income taxes you want to comb the fine print of your 401k plan prospectus it will spell out what exactly is a hardship. Every plan varies, so that may include withdrawals after the onset of a sudden disability. It could be money for the purchase of a first home, money for a burial or funeral cost, money to repair your home, money for payment of higher education expenses, money for payments necessary to prevent eviction or foreclosure, and some medical expenses that could crop up that are kind of very specific. You could do a loan in a 401k. A lot of people absolutely hate this, but i got to talk about it because we're talking about 401ks, 403Bs and 457s. Uh, 401k is a for-profit company. A 403B is a qualified retirement plan for a nonprofit. Very similar product, though. So most major 401k companies offer that loan provision. Restrictions vary by company to company, but most let you withdraw no more than 50% of your vested value as a loan. You can use 401k money for anything at all, tuition for graduate school tickets, or for tuition for graduate school. You can get tickets to see, you know, a Vegas show with a 401k loan. You can get a car. 
you repay the loan with interest the, through deductions taken directly from your paychecks. Borrowing from your 401k, if you absolutely must, is a cost-effective way to obtain a loan since you're borrowing money from yourself and paying it back with low interest. It's your money, and you don't have to go through the extensive credit checks and things like that. The biggest disadvantage is you're robbing from your future, and you're kind of doing some financial engineering. You may repay the money when you withdraw. You lose the compounded interest that you would receive had the money sat in the account. In the last five years, if you've had a loan against your 401k, you've lost 200%. So you've lost the up market. So try not to do it. Some companies restrict you from continuing to contribute to your 401k until you pay back the loan. Um, if you lose your job, you have to pay back the loan. Whether you quit, get laid off, fired, it becomes immediately due. Before you take out a 401k loan, you need to consider what would happen if you found yourself without a job, and that does happen. I think I've hit the 401k pretty good. Um, there's something called a 72T, which I once read that the T stood for it's a rule. It stood for AT&T because in the 80s, so many AT&T, you know, they were buying each other, breaking up Mother Ma Bell, and a lot of managers were retiring. They had this great 401k from AT&T stock all those years, but they couldn't retire because you couldn't get the money until they were 59 and a half. But under the 72T, you got to take withdrawals for at least five years or until you reach age 59 and a half. If you're 56 and poised to retire, you'll get a specified amount every year for five years until you're 61. It's a way of withdrawing without penalty. It's kind of nerdy. I'm Rob Black. You can find me online, robblack.com. You can find me, uh, email, rob at robblackshow.com. little 401ks, it's one of the greatest vehicles to get you to retirement. Think of it as a car. Well, no, think of it as wheels and a frame. And you have to like, figure, well, think of it as a vehicle that gets you to retirement. <laughs> you have to buy, you have to load it up with mutual funds or exchange traded funds or indexes. Um, it's the greatest way to save for retirement. Probably because it automates things. If I had to sit down and write a check every month for whatever reason, I probably wouldn't. When you change jobs, your choices sometimes are, do I leave the 401k or do I move it? I like moving it into an IRA. So if you work at Oracle or Visa and you change jobs, your paperwork will still come from Oracle or Visa about your 401k. Now, typically, it's, you know, it's outsourced, so it'll come from Fidelity or whoever the company uses for the 401k. But when you leave, you don't want to leave the 401k there because it's their choices, and that's really the only reason. I like being in control. I like having all my things in easier to find. 
And also, when you start collecting 401ks, like let's say you have five jobs in 10 years, you start getting some redundancies or you start getting some overweights that are bad. So you lose your job at Visa this week, or what was the other example, Oracle. You call your 401k company, and let's say it's Fidelity, and you say, I want to do, and it's 800 Fidelity or 800 Vanguard, I want to roll over my 401k into a self-directed IRA. Now, these companies are so good at what they do, you're done. They're going to walk you through it at this point in time. So that's me. Now, if you're uncomfortable with that or if you really like your old 401k, keep it there. It's not, the money's not going to go away. You're not going to lose it. If you move, update your records. That's always important. There are good reasons to take your 401k money with you. Some planners argue it's good to have all your money in one pot. Working for you as a single asset, you have access to, you know, that way to a loan you can tap in case of emergencies. If you're moving to another job that does not offer a 401k, it makes sense in most cases to move the cash into an IRA because you'll have greater control. Instead of 10 or 20 investment choices, you'll have access to hundreds and thousands of funds. It's important to remember that 401k accounts are a bit more protected from creditors than IRAs. Um, something that you should be aware of if you ever do go bankrupt. There's something called portability rules. In the old days, investors were required to put 401k money into something called a rollover IRA or a conduit IRA if they thought they might move the cash back into another 401k. You had to be real careful not to mix the money with any other retirement dollars, and they couldn't make new contributions to it either. But you're kind of free to blend those dollars now. You can put 401k money into an existing IRA and continue making contributions, or you can move your 401k account to a new IRA and then transfer it to a Roth IRA. And again, in all cases, just make sure you're doing what's called a trustee-to-trustee transfer when you have moved money. That means you direct the company housing your account to arrange the transfer with your old employer. A trustee-to-trustee transfer will avoid costly traps uh, when your old employer writes a check to you for the balance and you've got 60 days to deposit it into a new account. Um, be careful with that because, you know, you can forget, you can get into a car accident, you can lose the check, and so you get massive taxes and you're cashed out of your retirement plan way too early. The one part that's kind of tricky and it's tough to explain on radio is taking the withdrawals in retirement. You've saved money. You've maxed it out. You've done the 17500 You've done the 22.5. You know, you've done it. Congratulations. Now, I've seen more millionaires in 401ks than I've anything, anywhere else. But now that you're retired, you've got this big pot of money. What are you going to do? And keep in mind, one of the strategies I like, if you hit the right income strategy, income threshold, is have both a Roth IRA and a 401k. So you get the Roth IRA funded with as much as you can. You get the 401k funded as much as you can. Um, and then in retirement, you're going to have this option of, do you want to pay taxable out of one account? And do you want to like get a uh, an RV that's going to cost you 100000 out of the Roth because then you're not paying taxes on that 100000 So 100000 is really 100000 but if you pull $100,000 out of a 401k, you're going to pay you know, the 100000 tax bracket. Um, something called a lump sum distribution. If you need a wad of cash right now, that option gives you, you know, a lot of cash. The downside is you forfeit the benefits of the tax-deferred compounding by cashing out all at once. Um, a lot of people take their money out of the 401k and they incorrectly and stupidly and foolishly give it to an insurance salesperson who sells them an annuity. Um, it's a really, really bad idea. 
I think you should tap taxable accounts first in retirement to keep the money growing tax deferred as long as possible. Again, this is one of the reasons why you kind of need a CFP when you're retired to help come up with a strategy of making your money last as long as it can. So if you're retiring and you have money outside the 401k, you don't have to take it at 62. You don't have to take it at 63, 64, 65, 66, 67, 68. You could wait till 70 and a half. That's when you have to take money out of the 401k. Um, rolling money into an IRA is another idea since it gives you greater investment choice and control. So you're done with your career. Now you can roll it into an IRA and self-directed. Instead of being in index funds, you can say, I'm, I'm going to load up on some income stocks, for instance. Um, so anyway, that's some of the ideas on 401ks. I think I've hit that pretty good. If you have any questions, always drop me an email, rob at robblack.com. It's rob at robblack.com or rob at robblackshow.com now. Um, I would avoid annuities with that 401k money in retirement. Um, find me on Twitter, Rob Black Show. Twitter, Rob Black Show. Find me on YouTube, Rob Black Show. Don't be shy with your questions. We're doing the Money 101 series. Take a break here. We'll talk soon. Views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision.